Hello, and welcome to another bonus podcast. My name is Crystal Taves. I'm the pastor of women at Northview Community Church. The podcast that you're about to hear was recorded on our Wednesday morning Bible studies. Uh, we did a series of remarkable lives, learning from Christians from, the, from history. We hope you will enjoy it. Hi, my name's Maureen Johnson. I usually attend Monday night, and, but Sarah mentioned the possibility of presenting Billy Graham. And I jumped at the chance because I thought, how cool will it be to study and present somebody um, that I actually had heard and seen in real life? And um, so I'm happy to do this. And I'm one of those Simeon Trust ladies. And um, I highly recommend taking the chance to take any of those courses if you're inclined. So I was, as I said, excited. And I really enjoyed looking at the life of Billy Graham. And I was mostly, I have to say, honestly, looking forward to revisiting some of the um, happy memories I had of that time in my life when I was young and uh, heard him speak and heard the crusades on TV and went to a crusade and so on. But then, as I delved more deeply into the life and the times of Billy Graham, I found something far deeper than my happy memories. I was inspired and saddened, as well as convicted and challenged not just by the life of this remarkable Christian, but also by how God worked through him and the people and circumstances in his life. So we'll be going through some you know, biographical facts, but I want us to really look for all the amazing things that God did and used and unexpected things that he did and used to make Billy Graham become a vessel for him to allow Billy Graham to become faithful in gospel proclamation and to become the man who would be known as the one who preached the gospel to more people um, in the world than anybody else before or since. Now, because of the life and times in which Billy Graham lived, there is an overwhelming amount of evidence, uh, not evidence, but information. Um, It was the information age, the last part of his life. Um... So my material is from a variety of sources, but it's largely from a collection of articles published in the Christianity Today magazine, published as a tribute to him um, following his death in February, this, this past February. Okay, so you can see from your handout, I took this lot of information and, you know, being a Simeon Trust lady, divided it into not three, but I think four sections with, with headings and actually ended up using the same letter, which is not so much Simeon Trust, but just this thing that happens in my brain. Okay, so William, William, Franklin, Jr., or William Franklin Graham Jr. was born in 1918, a few months after the end of the First World War. And he grew up on a successful dairy farm near what was then the small town of Charlotte, North Carolina, where he, like many other dairy farm children, learned the value and the discipline of hard work. At the age of 12, he gave his first public speech at a school pageant, and he vowed never to speak in public again. (laughs) In May of 1934, the Christian businessmen of uh, Charlotte, North Carolina, got permission to hold an all-day prayer meeting on the Graham farm. And one thing those men prayed for on that day was that out of Charlotte, the Lord would raise up someone to preach the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
Later that same year, Billy, his friend Grady Wilson, and Grady's brother, T.W. Wilson, decided to go to some revivalist meetings that were causing controversy in their little town. So after sitting at the back of the auditorium for several nights, um, they decided to join the choir. Not so they could sing, because the choir loft is behind the preacher, and they thought if they went to the choir loft, they could avoid what they considered to be the withering gaze of Mordecai Ham. But their plan didn't work, because one of those, those nights, during the singing of the invitation hymn, all three of them went forward, repented, and gave their lives to Christ. And later, all three of those men went into ministry. And in time, all three of those men worked for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Uh, Billy was the oldest of four children born to Frank and Morrill Graham, who were devout Presbyterians and who faithfully held family devotions from the time of their honeymoon and who faithfully attended church. <laughs> Billy's sister Jean said at the funeral, I think it was then when she said, I... I don't remember anything that happened at church that we didn't go to. They also hosted a number of revivalist preachers who came through Charlotte. After his conversion, Billy accompanied one of these preachers to a local prison, and he was kind of talked to into unexpectedly telling his conversion story. And he was extremely nervous, and uh, the prisoners were not subtle in showing how disinterested they were in what he had to say. And, so, and he said this just reinforced his conviction that he would never become a preacher. So those are sort of foundations of faith that we see here, and now we look on to the educational foundations. Though, like many, Billy Graham was not a particularly engaged or motivated student his parents intended to send him to college along with his other siblings, and they hoped it would be Wheaton College in Illinois because it was a well-known Christian college as it still is today. But finances dictated that he would go to Bob Jones University, and Grady Wilson went with him as well, one of the boys that became Christians when he did, and it was closer to home. Now, Billy really was comfortable in the barn and really enjoyed his dairy farm work as much as perhaps to some of us it doesn't sound that appealing, um, but uh, Bob Jones, he went to university, and Bob Jones was a very strict um, university. It strongly regulated every aspect of student life. And Billy, who, according to his mom, was somewhat energetic and rambunctious, did not fit well with this, and he kind of rebelled against the system and collected enough demerits except for one. He only had one left and he would have been expelled. So he decided halfway through that year, that academic year, um, to switch universities. And he went to Florida Bible Institute, which is halfway, uh, uh, was January 1937. So he's just a little over 18 at that time. And he was more successful there, but still not much of a scholar, though he was popular. And some say he, he showed a grace and dignity in spite of this rambunctious part of him. That was kind of beyond his years. Uh, Billy himself, his thoughts on Florida Bible Institute was that it was the most important period of his life in terms of his spiritual growth for three reasons. It was there that um, the significance of a daily quiet time was reinforced. It was there where he learned to study the Bible systematically and thoughtfully, not just flicking it open and having a casual read. 
And it was there he experienced, as his words were, the unity of God's people who sincerely held Jesus at the center of their hearts and lives. And this is really important because we'll see as we go through his life how it affected um, how he did ministry. And he came to this conclusion because at Florida Bible Institute, he was living in residence with Christians from a, various, a variety of denominations and uh, Christian backgrounds. And from that, he could see, again in his words, despite denominational differences, there existed at the grassroots, the basic level of American Protestantism, a common denominator Bible-based faith to which an evangelist could appeal. So that was true of Billy Graham's time. That was his observation, and it's uh, an observation that he practiced upon. It was also at uh, FBI where he began doing some preaching in spite of his further declarations to do uh, do otherwise. And after one of these preaching opportunities, it did occur to him that maybe the Lord was calling him to be a preacher. And so, though he was really less than thrilled at that possibility, he continued to hone his preaching skills, and he did so by taking a little boat into a nearby river, and in that river there was a little islet, and he'd go there and preach out loud to the trees and the alligators and the birds, and go back to um, the mainland, college, and be asked how many converts he had. However, one night in 1938, he was taking one of his many nighttime walks. He's now 20. And it came to him that, indeed, the Lord did want him to preach. And he got down on his knees, and he just prayed, Oh, God, if you want me to serve you, I will. And we see all the little steps so far, how God has done unexpected things to gradually be bringing Billy Graham to the point where he would be used by God in a very special way. Um, when, oh, next picture, there we go. When Billy graduated from um, Florida Bible Institute, they were dark times. They perceived them as dark times because the World War II had started abroad and mafia infiltration was having significant influences at home. And interestingly, the valedictorian of his graduating class somewhat prophetically said God has chosen an instrument to shine forth his light in the darkness. Men like Luther, John Wesley, Moody, and others were ordinary men, but men who heard the voice of God. And so there's his grand picture, his favorite hymn, Faith of Our Fathers. And Jude, we're studying Jude at Northview, and that was one of his verses, I exhort you that you should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered to the saints. And now his aim is, amazingly, to be an evangelist. And he was present, this active man, and we'll see how active he was through his life, president of the senior class, assistant pastor already of Tampa Tampa Gospel Tabernacle, and um, chaplain of the trailer court. He also did some washing dishes and caddying on the side. Um, Now, just, oops, sorry, just before graduation from FBI, two members from Wheaton College came to Tampa to golf, actually, and he was their caddy, and these two people had heard him speak, and one of these people was the brother of the incoming president of Wheaton College, 
And they told him that they would pay his tuition if he would come to Wheaton College. So he took him up on the offer, and after all, he did go to Wheaton. So in his second year of Wheaton, he's now just 23 years old. The, the president, the man who is now president, had been pastor of the United Gospel Tabernacle, but he had to leave the position to become president. And he recommended that Billy Graham be the one to replace him, even though he was still a student at the uh, college. Now, that particular church um, was where a lot of Wheaton students attended, and it was, I guess, in part because of that church that had a lot of people from different denominations again, different faith backgrounds, different faith walks. And um, he got to use the idea that he got at FBI about galvanizing Christians from all backgrounds to work towards the common goal. And in addition to this church work, he's still studying, and he's taking on other speaking engagements, and he graduated in 1943, as you see there, with a BA in anthropology. Who'd have guessed it? But... It was for other reasons than, we, than the, his degree that Wheaton was to be the most important part of his education because it was there that he met Ruth Bell. Ruth Bell had a strong sense of her own calling. She was the daughter of uh, medical Presbyterian missionaries and she'd spent her life in China where they were serving and time in Korea as well. I think that might have been where her boarding school was. Ruth said that one of the first things she noticed about Billy is that he wanted to please God more than any man she'd ever met. She said that this desire set him apart more than anything else about him. In her heart, in her mind anyways, it set him apart more than anybody she'd met. At a time when Christians were highly focused on the second coming, in fact, they were anticipating it. We regularly heard about it. We would talk about it and we kind of you know, it would be in our plans, you know, if the Lord doesn't come before then. But Billy was a little different because he actually was saying, I hope the Lord waits a little while because I want a chance to do something really great for him before he comes back. Another observation she made was at a prayer meeting, and she thought, there is a man who knows to whom he is speaking. And so we talk about remarkable Christians, and I think here we are seeing something remarkable, not just in the qualities that Billy Graham is exhibiting, but in the fact that Ruth Graham is noticing these qualities, and not just noticing them, but really valuing them. And I think that's really remarkable. Billy and Ruth married in 1943 following graduation, but as committed as they each were to ministry, they weren't agreed on what that ministry would be. And as they worked it through, obviously they settled on the prior priority would be on his desire to preach the gospel. Now some might feel that Ruth capitulated or was robbed of her own opportunity to serve the Lord. But Billy Graham said later in life that when it came to spiritual things, his wife had the greatest influence on his ministry. And later we'll see a couple of ways in which that was true, but there is so much information on Billy that I don't really touch on Ruth hardly at all. No, so there's their wedding picture. Later when it, um, oh, I should say, 
One of his associates, T.W. Wilson, Grady's brother, one of the three boys who became Christians together, said if there were no Ruth, uh, there would be no Billy. So his choice of a wife was foundational to his success in his ministry. Later, when it became apparent that he would be traveling, he gave her total, the total decision as to where they would live, where their home would be. And she chose Montreat, North Carolina, because her, her parents had retired there, and uh, they would be able to help raise what would end up being the five children that they had. And it was that same home from which they retired and died. They never left that home. As famous as they became, they never felt the need to move up. So what I've called preparation for proclamation, that's a 25-year period. And now we're going to look at pathway to proclamation. And it's kind of a pathway that is made out of stepping stones, maybe even stepping stones climbing a bit of a hill to the, uh, the peak that he wants to get to. So at this point in Billy Graham's life, you know, Elizabeth Elliot said, just do the next thing. Well, his next things came very quickly, one on top of the other. So you, you really may want to watch your timeline here as we go through this. Um, after graduation, he took a position at a Baptist church uh, in Illinois, and it was soon discovered that his preaching style was better suited to stadiums, outdoor stadiums, rather than small, closed sanctuaries. In other words... He was pretty loud. And not that we're used to that. And so one person said, most pastors preach sermons that are uplifting and designed to enable Christians to grow deeper in their faith. But when Billy preached, it was if he were preaching to a group of sinners that didn't know the way, that were looking for the way, and he was there to tell them the way. And also during this time, keeping in mind this guy's energy, maybe he was ADHD. Anyways, he put it to good use. And during this time, he hosted a religious program on Chicago's largest radio station. And there he met and became friends with Canada's own George Beverly Shea. Anybody heard of George Beverly Shea? Yeah, he made How Great Thou Art popular in North America. It had already hit Europe, but he was... That was one thing he was known for. And he, was, he met George Beverly Shea because all those shows had to have their soloist. Any rally, any mini had to have a soloist. And that was George Beverly Shea's job. So as a result of exposure on this radio program, he was being asked to speak in a lot of places, which led to him leaving the church and um, speaking at a variety of evangelistic rallies. Now, a group of evangelistic rallies grew up in the States um, aimed at military men who were coming back from war or perhaps would be going to war. And they were kind of random rallies around the country, but one man kind of joined them together under an umbrella, under an umbrella organization called Youth for Christ. Anybody heard of Youth for Christ? Yeah, it, it, it's still around. Some of us went to Youth for Christ. Um, my daughter-in-law in Lebanon became a Christian through Youth for Christ, and it, it still is functioning in, in different ways now. And Billy was asked to be the first vice president, and then he, of course, he was uh, preaching for them at the rallies, and he traveled for them, establishing different chapters of YFC um, in North America and in Europe. Now, as I said, one of the essentials, or maybe I didn't say, was singing. 
So Bev Chase provided special music. That was his job. But congregational singing, and as we'll see in the Crusades, choirs. That was an essential part. But somehow one night, Billy Graham's song leader couldn't come. And somehow, this man named Cliff Barrows heard about Billy Graham's predicament and offered his services, even though Cliff Barrows was on his honeymoon. Anyways, he, he went to Billy. Billy shook his hand, and Billy said, well, I guess we can't be choosy tonight, <laughs> which is kind of funny when you consider then those men worked together in ministry for around 60 years. And how many of you know Cliff Barrows? Yeah. Cliff Barrows, there's an interview for Cliff Barrows. Anybody interested, just Google it. There's a lovely long interview when he's really old and shortly before his death. And that's another amazing story. The YFC rallies shaped how Billy wanted to do his own rallies. And, and he held his first own Billy Graham evangelistic rally in Charlotte. And with his team, who is now Cliff Barrows, George Beverly Shea, uh, Grady... Grady Wilson and, and Billy, the four of them. T.W. joined later. But now he's busy. He's got his own rallies, so he steps down in a positive way with, uh, from YFC. He remained on the board. The sixth of Billy's own rallies was held in Los Angeles. And this became the rally that kind of got the crusade ball rolling, so to speak, for a variety of, of reasons. First of all, there were a few high-profile conversions. Has anybody read the book, Unbroken, or seen the movie? Excellent book. Ah. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, and that's, no, no, no worries. And that's usually the way it is, right? You get a lot of inner details from the book. So he became a Christian through that L.A. Louis Zamperlini. I don't know if you heard um, Melissa say. That's right. But they're going to read the book. Yes. Okay. <laughs> right. And then there was another, some other conversions, a well-known disc jockey, and um, under, some underworld, some mafia figures. And then, one of the biggest things, um, people who don't recognize the work of the Holy Spirit will attribute a lot of Billy Graham's success in coming to fame to the fact that, known only to God, reasons known only to God, the newspaper magnate William Randolph Hearst gave the order to his publishers and publications to give Billy Graham front page. And then this rally that was planned to be three weeks lasted seven or eight weeks. So after just six of his own personal kind of um, evangelistic rallies culminating in this one, Billy Graham is 31 years old and he is rocketed rocketed into national fame. So now it's apparent to his team that the opportunities to go into the world and preach the gospel to massive crowds in large venues of every sort, they realize they need to incorporate. And in 1950, 
the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association was born. And I think uh, most of us, when we think of Billy Graham, we think of the Crusades, right? Um, so there are some contextual factors that contributed to the success of Billy Graham's Crusades. There already existed in North America and Europe uh, the, the idea of evangelistic rallies and these parachurch um, preaching opportunities, especially in the U.S. And this had developed in order to combat liberalism that had started to infiltrate seminaries and um, churches. By being independent of denominational leadership and restrictions and beliefs, the preachers could go directly to people with a clear, simple evangelical message, and they weren't restricted by what they had to say. And Billy Graham was able to build on this sort of existing structure and uh, expectation and took great advantage of it, better advantage than anyone before or since. Another factor was that it was post-war, and, you know, war makes people um, realize the fragility of life and think more of their dependence on God. And a third factor was that in those days, church attendance was a very socially encouraged thing, and people generally believed the Bible and generally believed in God, which relates to what Billy saw as a, a grassroots base that he could build upon. Another factor that made his uh, crusade successful is based on his experience with working um, with people, Christians from a variety of backgrounds. He was committed to working with a church not just being parachurch preaching, but involving the church. Um, and so, sort of a byproduct, though it wasn't his exact calling and goal, was to work with the church, to unify the church. J.I. Packer, a well-known theologian, said, at that time, in up to 1940, it was every institution for itself. There wasn't anything unifying about the situation, they were little outposts of resistance, trying to keep their end up in the face of the approaching liberals. Increasingly, from 1950s onward, evangelicals came together behind Billy Graham and the things that he stood for and was committed to. And in that vein, he also held large congresses around the world, focused on evangelism to train people to um, be evangelistic. And 200 or 250 countries would be represented there. Okay, so how many of you have seen a crusade on TV? How many of you have been to a crusade? And how many of you have volunteered or participated in one? Any? Yeah, okay. Counselors? Counselors? Or in the choir? Yeah. Well, when it comes to crusades, I could drown you in numbers. There's so many stats about them, so I'm just going to give kind of one general sentence about it. Um, if I were to print out just a list of the names of the Crusades, of the 417 Crusades, held in 185 countries on six continents, um, that involved more than 250 million people attending, it would take 18 of these pages. And of course, when you add mass media exposure to that, the numbers increase exponentially. Now, as big and noticeable as the Crusades were, and this is what people see and what they envision, unless you were volunteering, you may not be aware of the amount of on-site preparation that went. And the first 
part of the preparation was evaluating an invitation. They didn't just go in. They, they looked for an invitation. And in evaluating the invitation, they would be looking at who sent that invitation, how broad was the base. And they actually turned down an invitation from New York City because it was a small group of evangelical preachers that extended the invitation. So about a year after that, another invitation came. And it represented 31 denominations. And Billy was still inclined to say no just because it was going to be such a big deal, New York City and all, and it was so different from anything he'd done. But Ruth said, go. So they went. Um, so the first thing in prep was evaluating the invitation. The second thing was the actual preparation beforehand, and they were known for being organized. Um, but the most detailed part of their prep, obviously logistics is a big deal, but it was prayer. Anybody who worked for the organization or volunteered um, would say prayer was absolutely central to the, to the Crusades. And congregations, the, the inviting uh, preachers, all the churches that were involved would have congregational prayer meetings and, of course, praying with the volunteers and so forth. In New York, they usually went in a few months, three to five months in advance. In New York City, they went a year in advance. And for Hungary, the preparations, and I'm not sure all what those entailed, were five years in advance because that was behind the Iron Curtain. And you can imagine how complicated that was. So they had their on-site preparation. Then they had a program called Operation Andrew. The disciple Andrew, if you remember, um, met Christ, and then he invited his brother Peter, so hence Operation Andrew. And the congregations were given a card and a very specific sort of plan and program to think of people, unbelieved people in your circles, to put on the card, to pray for, to invite, and to follow up with after the crusade. For the New York uh, um, Crusade, there was a little off-site preparation. Obviously, off-site, Billy Graham had to do his sermon preparation and his own prayer. But in addition, he would run up and down the mountains near where he lived to get his stamina up. And, and the stamina for the New York one, he thought he needed stamina for three weeks. The New York one was extended three times to 16 weeks. The New York one was the longest-running one, 16 weeks. Korea was the most well-attended one at 1.1 million. And Moscow had the most people come forward at 155,000. And I said I wasn't going to drown you in statistics. Okay, obviously the essential thing um, was the gospel message. And Billy preached through several decades. And the social and political situations are changing. And he preached in many different kinds of countries in many countries. So his topics and his, a lot of his content related to those things, but it always included um, a very clear gospel message, a message that required more than a simple prayer, a message that demanded repentance, repentance that showed itself in a change of life and a change of direction. So... Um, we're going to be looking at a video of his preaching. A lot of people think Billy Graham crusades, but he preached the gospel by any means possible. Once mass media was there, he thought, the world's my oyster. I can, I can share with everybody. So up here, we're not going through all this stuff. It's just to give you a picture of the range of his influence and involvement in other ways. 
Oh, and this is our this is preaching. So first of all, you have to meet God with life. I do not believe that any man, that any man can solve the problems of life without Jesus Christ. Even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Have you believed in this Son that was lifted up? Have you received him? Are you sure that your sins are forgiven? Religion without a personal encounter with Jesus Christ will not save the soul, and it will not bring the peace that your soul longs for. I want to say something I hope you'll never forget, he said. Love one another. Love one another. Love one another. And that is the message I want to leave as I go back to America. Love one another in Korea. Do you know Christ? Are you prepared to meet God? How do you prepare? Listen. First, you repent of sin. That means you change your whole way of thinking about God and about yourself and about life. If you call upon him, he will forgive. If you repent, he will forgive. If you turn to Christ and trust only in the cross and the blood of Christ, he will forgive. Let's can say it together. Let's try all together. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Lord, I go to church. Señor, yo voy a la iglesia. Lord, I treat my neighbors right. Señor, yo trato a mi vecino bien. I'm not a real bad person. En realidad, yo no soy una mala persona. But God says we've all sinned. You come just as you are. And come to Jesus, who's on the cross for you and who rose again. And who's a living Savior. I'm going to ask you to come from all over this stadium and make that commitment tonight. You're not coming to me, you're coming to Jesus. you care. He can forgive every sin, break any coil and rope and chain of habit that may be binding you at this moment, and stop any lashing conscience that may be bothering you because of your sins. Yes, Jesus has the answer to life's problem. Sorry? Oh, thanks. Press it again. I don't see. I'll get my technical expert here. I was telling the ladies on Monday night when I was a kid watching the Billy Graham Crusades. Sometimes I'm not even sure I heard the sermons because I was just so excited to look forward to the invitation. And I'll do this better than I did Monday night. <laughs> 
and see all those people coming. Not half of them I know are counselors, but still, see all those people coming, thanks, Sarah, and know their lives were going to be changed. And to be at a crusade was like having a little taste of heaven. You knew a lot of people were believers, and to see a lot more becoming, it was amazing. And now we see some other Christianity Today magazine, Billy Graham started, 39 books. And so he used any means to pass, to pass the, uh, the gospel along. Clearly, as we saw from uh, his experience of Bob Jones University, he was a very high individual, a high energy individual, and you can see that from what he was involved in. Ruth, who had quite a sense of humor, and I wish I had time to tell you some of the things she said, um, said having him take her on a crusade was like being the wife of a military commander taking his wife into battle. She said she just didn't have the energy to keep up. Okay, the last thing we're going to look at, on your handout it says the person behind faithful proclamation, but on my paper it says the power and the person behind the faithful proclamation. We know that ultimately the power behind salvation and therefore behind Billy Graham's ministry is that of the Holy Spirit. Billy Graham said, it is the Holy Spirit's job to convict, God's job to judge, and my job to love. And for Billy, that expression of love was preaching the gospel to all, and he was unwavering in purpose. So that's one characteristic that made him usable by God. As we saw, every sermon contained an unadorned, clear gospel message expressed with generous sprinklings of scripture. He was known for the phrase, the Bible says, He completely trusted and believed in God's word, not his, to be used of the spirit to convict people of sin and turn to Christ. Uh, One pastor said, with regard to his single-mindedness, to be with him even for a short time is to get a sense of a single-minded man. It shames one and shakes one, as no amount of ability and cleverness can do. And the single-mindedness extended to all aspects of the ministry, again, not just the Crusades. One example was in 2009, the Christianity Today board was going to have a meeting and reassess their vision, their original vision. And as it happened that particular day, Billy Graham was feeling well enough to come down the mountain and go to the meeting. And as he listened to the discussion, he spoke up and he again emphasized the centrality of Christ and his word. And he said to them, stay fixed on these, and Christianity today will remain strong. Move away from these truths, he said, and I guess I'll just have to write a letter to the editor. (laughs) And he remained unwavering in spite of temptations, believe it or not, to do otherwise. There were a couple of forks in the road that he could have taken, and praise the Lord, he had a redirection and kept to his focus. For instance, there was a period of time, he says, when he felt he came close to identifying the American way of life with the kingdom of God. But he came to see clearly that God called him to a higher kingdom than America. And another um, temptation came when he was encouraged to delve into politics. But Ruth, again, kept him on track with the words... I don't think the American people would vote for a divorced president. And if you leave the ministry for politics, you will certainly have a divorce on your hands. 
Later on, uh, some event, other evangelical pastors and leaders were wanting to unite for political uh, efforts, and he dissuaded them. He argued for the purity of the gospel and told them to stick to preaching the gospel if that was what they were called to do. He also remained unwavering in spite of the cost, and as you can well imagine, it was hard to leave home and be away for three to six months of a year. And he said he often drove down the, the driveway with tears. And of course, his children felt the effects of uh, basically their father being absent so much. And that's another whole story for which we don't have time. He also uh, remained unwavering in spite of opposition. And sadly, most of this opposition came from other Christians. To Billy, the whole world did not just mean to every geographical location, but to all people groups, including people of other religions, and including Christians who did not have the same theological beliefs that he had. And as a result, he was often criticized for working with Roman Catholics, Orthodox, uh, liberal, Protestants, and even Jews. And the accusation was, by acknowledging them on the platform and working with them, he was compromising the gospel. But his response was that if anyone compromised, it was not him, but those who disagreed with his theology and yet participated in those crusades. And he told his critics he would preach the gospel anywhere as long as there were no strings attached. And there were countless other unkind and accurate accusations hurled his way. C.S. Lewis said to him, You have many critics, but I've never met one of your critics who knows you personally. And knowing Billy personally made the difference because of his incredible Christian character. Um, Another minister said, My first impression of the man was not of his good looks, but of his goodness. Not of his extraordinary range of commitments, but of his extraordinary committedness to his Lord and Savior. And his goodness was probably most noted by people in two areas, his integrity and his humility. In 1948, when it became apparent to the team what they were going to be doing for their lives, preaching the gospel in this situation, they discussed amongst themselves what were some of the factors that caused other preachers and evangelists to fall. And then they drew up a a list of um, commitments they would make to each other as a team, as a ministry. Purity and personal conduct. Integrity and finances. Honesty and statistical reporting. And cooperation with local churches. And they stuck to that for 60 years, all those guys. And that is remarkable. And a real credibility to the, um, gave such credibility to the gospel message. And the other characteristic that people will always talk about is his humility. They said he always displayed a Christ-like humility and it only increased over the years. And when you consider how fame and success leads to arrogance and pride, even in preachers, he was He was unique. And you saw how he spoke so forthrightly and confidently, and a lot of people were surprised at his otherwise sort of meek meek demeanor and his humility. Um, And he he demonstrated his humility in admitting his errors, which he itemized as being not studying enough, not spending enough time with his family, and having occasional errors in judgment, especially when it came to somewhat naively innocent interactions with politicians. Those are, those are his words. 
And he said, it's better to show humility and it's better to say I'm wrong or I'm sorry when you've made a mistake. I suppose when I make a mistake, it hurts the evangelical cause. I've made many statements I wish I could recall. I am an erring, fallible disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ and am subject to all the temptations, human frailties and errors of other disciples of the Lord. What a beautiful picture of a humble servant of the Lord. And he demonstrated this um, humility in his relationships too. Were co-workers, um, famous people who met him, and his, his family members will all say that he was very humble in his relationships. He was unfailingly modest with regard to himself and lavish in his praise of others. A widow brought her son to work and said to Billy, my son wants to meet my boss. And he said, I'm not your boss, I'm your servant. And even with his critics, he would arrange to meet them as Charles Simeon did. And um, almost every time, his humility, transparency, and genuineness won them over. And his humility led to his teachability. He loved to learn from other people. He would go to hear other preachers, and if he met somebody that studied more than them, he'd be happy to prick their brain, pick their brain. And his lifestyle was humble. As you see, they never saw the need to move up, and he often didn't take honorariums for preaching. And the best part of this thing about his character is really how it came to be. And somebody termed it his intentional intimacy with God. Uh, one of the CT writers writes, Graham had a, commit, a deep commitment to a consistent, thoughtful, devotional life. Without it, he never would have become the person he was or been as successful as he was. He remained motivated to a consistent prayer life and time with the Lord because he knew that in himself, he was not equal to the task he had been called to be gifted. He was gifted as an evangelist, and God had called him, but it wasn't enough. Uh, he believed John 15 when it says, I'm the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, though, you can do nothing. And the second thing that compelled him to maintain this intimacy with God was a deep concern, and some say fear, of doing anything that would disgrace Christ's name. And he knew his team, too, had to remain immersed in the scriptures and prayer. God accomplished remarkable things through Billy Graham, but to me, the most remarkable thing about him was his devotion sorry, and dependence on, God, on his God. Sarah, I did this Monday night. <laughs> I was sure I wouldn't do it again. As I got to know Billy Graham better through this, I was challenged by his intentional intimacy with God convicted by his passion for the lost, saddened by the lack of love among Christians, and inspired by the amazing work of our amazing God. This is what a remarkable Christian does. They show us that we can all be remarkable Christians, and they show us what a remarkable God we have.